Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to episode six of Bug Eyes Rock Pop Brambles, where today on the show we're going to be talking about LaRue and Amanda Palmer. And also we're going to have new music from Dutch Mustard and Floodhound. I'm here with Kerry. Uh, yes, you are. I am Kerry from Bug Eye, and you are? I am Paula from Bug Eye, strangely enough. I maybe should have introduced myself on that. I, I feel was... I feel like you forgot to introduce stuff there, so I thought I'd just help you I out. I did. Thanks, Kerry. I was assuming that by this point, you know, they've got used to the sound of my voice, they know who we are, but man, sadly not, maybe. Maybe we need to go with the introductions for a while. Yeah, I feel like we should probably still introduce ourselves, also because, obviously, different ones of us every week talking yep. about our stories from rock and pop. And this is the first week that we are without Angela on the podcast. Strange times, strange times. I know. So we've sort of, we're flying solo today, you and me, aren't we? Yeah. And let's hope that we get this right. We'll do our best. (laughs) (laughs) All right then. So uh, with that, should we crack on with some new music maybe? Sure. So uh, this week I have uh, a song from Floodhounds for you. Um, So we've seen Floodhounds, well, I've seen Floodhounds quite a few times. We saw them... Uh, when we played in Brighton with them mm-hmm. last May. Oh, is that the Brighton mix-up? The um... yeah, 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 for the Brighton mix-up. Um, and I think they're brilliant. Very like kind of blues rock sound. Um, Lauren, the drummer, uh, I think is absolutely fantastic. She's bloody great. All about, all about championing uh, those other female drummers um, at the moment. So the song I've got for you uh, is "Out of Time," which we'll listen to in a minute. It uh, is sort of their most recent single. Uh, They recorded it together with what will be their next single, um, Something Primeval, which will be out on the 1st of May. And it was recorded with uh, Tom Michener at Broadfield Studios back in August. And they they would have been playing a bunch of gigs to support their new single. But obviously, like everyone else, not able to at the moment. Sad times Um, for us all, hey? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But they've got, um, they're going to have a music video and a live video uh, coming out for it. Oh, nice. Um, that they managed to do a couple of months ago. They've also got um, a cover of Clint Eastwood uh, by Gorillaz up on YouTube at the moment, which is Seriously? pretty cool. Yeah. So, I'm going to uh, check that definitely... out. Can you do me a favour? Make sure you put that in the links below this because I will never remember to find it myself. Yeah, for sure. I'll stick it in the links. Uh, so people should definitely check that out and they're going to have lots more acoustic videos and stuff coming up to uh, keep them and everyone else from going mad uh, with all the lack of gigs um, and stuff to do. So without further ado... Let's listen to Out of Time. Cause you can't help yourself 
by the Floodhounds, uh, an absolutely awesome band who you should definitely check out. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, all just as Floodhounds. So nice and easy to find them. Um, so yeah, go check them out. Follow as them, you should do, do all that good stuff. Okay, so are we ready for a quick ramble? Yeah, let's do it. What are you rambling about again? LaRue, I'm Today, excited. Today I am rambling about LaRue. I am indeed. Um, so LaRue was formed in 2006 by a singer, Ellie Jackson, and also a guy called Ben Langmead, who had been work- kicking around working with Faceless. Um, they were introduced through a mutual friend. I'm not sure if it was a pub and a party back in those days when we did such things. I like it. Just imagining these things, you know, people out at a pub meeting each other. The good times. Yeah, those times are coming back, don't worry. And imagine how good they'll be when we get there. Um, That's true. Ellie Jackson had been quite musical from an early age. She first started discovering music by going through her parents' record collection, as I think many of us did. And I was going to say, yeah, uh, as most people yeah, did. And there she found quite a lot of folk influences, such as uh, Joni Mitchell, Nick Drake, to name a few. So when she was starting out writing music, it was, it was all kind of sort of quite acoustic-y, singer songwriter I guess I've not actually heard any of it so I can't verify that but that's what I've read what I've gained, <laughs> We're imagining. What I've gained from the interweb the wonderful interweb um but then growing up she started getting into um artists such as Prince Bowie and into like a kind of sort of the rave scene um I think the Prince and Bowie are quite interesting for me because I think that it, it wasn't just well I can't say for sure I've not had a conversation with her about it but I think it didn't just influence like her musical style I think it influenced her as like an artist in a sort of more encompassing sense, like in terms of the fact that there's a 
almost like you know the way that David Bowie had Ziggy Stardust and there was sort of an alter ego that yeah so she sort of had like a a performance persona exactly yeah and I think it's like from her early interviews that's quite apparent she doesn't talk about her personal life too much she dodges any kind of not dodges but she just doesn't want to talk about anything to do with her sexuality or anything to do with that she's like there is a musician and this is the kind of image that I'm portraying. And I think her image is quite striking. Like it's a very sort of sharp androgynistic look. There's the kind of the quiff that she's well known for. I mean, the name of the band or the duo as they were at the time, LaRue means the redhead one. So that's clearly a reference to her, her hair color, her style. And I, very cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was the, the reason for the name. It is indeed. Awesome. You will find the, um, references in the links below here i'm doing the little downward pointing thing that we all do on social media for christ's sake not that you can see it but anyway i'm doing that paula the living emoji (laughs) oh my dear lord um yeah so sorry so initially um they formed a band called Automan that was very much in this kind of sort of like singer songwriter folky type thing but then that sort of went on and developed into larue as we know it with a sort of hits like bulletproof quicksand in for the kill and they all kept... Bulletproof. Bulletproof is totally the one that I was trying to think of that I couldn't remember the name of. Um, the only song I can remember. Although now you mentioned In For The Kill and Quicksand. I'm like, oh, I know lots of LaRue songs, actually. I've just totally forgotten about them. I need to go listen to her again. Quicksand. I dearly love that song. And I don't know why. Recently, I've been kind of feeling like to listen to music of yesteryear. I don't know if it's the times or what, but there's something really comforting listening to albums. Anyway, I'm, I'm going back. I'm going back. Um, so they, yeah, their debut album performed astonishingly well for a debut album. Um, it was platinum selling, it earned a Grammy, which is pretty massive when you consider this was someone who started singing. Actually, her first gig was in a pub just down the road from me, a pub called The Half Moon in Hernhill, which is still there to this day. It's a beautiful pub, has no more live music, but it had a pretty kind of colourful sort of musical past. Apparently Frank Sinatra stopped there once to meet his chauffeur and decided to have a, you know, a little tinkle on the old ivories and do a quick set. Anyway, again, we're going off on a tangent and a ramble here. Yeah, so they went on. Yeah, so they went on to sell this, have this platinum selling album. Do you know how many albums you need to sell? Which is another thing I learned in the course of this research to have a platinum selling album. Uh, I don't, but I'm going to guess. Go for it. Uh, is it a million? <laughs> Shut up! Are you on Google? No, I get that was a genuine guess. Uh, was that right? Yeah, hundred percent. Oh my god, I'm so happy right now. I can't believe I guessed that right. <laughs> Kerry, today you won at life. Well done. Yes. Well done, well done. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that term banded around loads, but never actually understood what it meant. So anyway, yeah, that's something I've learned in the course of this. So after this album, like they'd been touring it, it took a while for their second album to come up. And there was a lot of kind of tension between the two of them. Um, she like, I think the singer Ellie had just kind of felt like she didn't want to do another LaRue album as in LaRue's in their debut, t- debut title. And she's kind of she was kind of over the whole sort of sort of eighties synth sound. I mean, that album's got a really distinctive sound. And I mean, she's quoted as saying at the time, "Of course, they wanted another another fucking bulletproof. Even my parents wanted that." Um, but for her, I guess she just kind of got to a point where she was like, "I'm done with the synth. I'm done with this whole sort of everything having this kind of." I mean, I don't, I don't think all the songs sound the same, but you can definitely tell they're from the same album. And she was wanting to go down a route that used and explored different instruments. But however, I mean, both her duo partner Ben and the record company were like what are you doing what are you doing just write the hits make the money take it and go 
and she just took a stance of, you know what, fuck off. I want to have some credibility in this. I don't want this just to be a cash cow for, well, for me being miserable and for you as a record company just raking it in. Yeah, it's fair enough. Um, I feel like that's a dilemma a lot of artists end up finding themselves in, yeah. right? Once you've sort of got that winning formula. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got the people that are just going to want to make the money at the end of the day and want you to keep repeating that. But as an artist, you know, you tend to want to develop and move on to something new. Yeah, or at least keep it keep something changing, keep something like a little bit dynamic in it. I mean, otherwise <coughs> you were churning out the same song year after year. You could just become a covers band, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like she was kind of quoted as saying that she was so synth music and it was her thing, but now she was bored with it. And all this sort of came to a head when Langman left in 2012. I mean, this album is called Trouble in Paradise and it was a kind of a bit of a trouble Very for them. Apt name. It had to... Yeah, I mean, sometimes... It's hard to know, I guess, whether they named that album after all the issues or whether that was the name of the album that was always given. Uh, yeah. It was just cursed from the start. Yeah, for but sure. It certainly was cursed. I mean, it it had two it had two launch dates that were just binned completely. I mean, I think it was like six years in the making or something oh, wow. ridiculous like that. Maybe that's an exaggeration. Yeah, it was <laughs> did you, a serious did you just, of time. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Did you just pick the number six uh-huh. out of your ass, basically? Or was the number six based on something then? The number six based on what I believe it, it <laughs> took them to write the album, Kerry. <laughs> I love it. Classic, Listen, classic Ker- bug yeah, eye Kerry, facts. Yeah. <laughs> I am giving people here material for Corrections Corner. Perfect. If someone wants to research that and prove that Paula just totally made that up, you go mm-hmm. for it. That is your prerogative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, here's a fact that I know I didn't make up. Um, this whole kind of sort of situation lent, Lent, oh, sorry, led to her being dropped by the, the label, which was Polydor at the time. Um, apparently, she received a letter on New Year's Day through the letterbox saying that she'd been dropped. Wow. Which I guess in some circumstances could seem quite bleak, but for her, I mean, she was, she said she was delighted, felt super lucky because she owed them, like, she's basically, I think, in a five year, that would be, yeah, five album deal or something like that. She owed them another three albums. So that was going to be another three albums. I guess from her perception of wrangling about what kind of direction she should take, whether that should be a, you know, just get it done, write the pop hits, make some money, or whether this was going to be an actual sort of a, kind of like a relationship and a partnership that was helping her as an artist as well, not just her there to be a cash cow for them. Um, Around the time as well, she underwent something that that I, I didn't even know people could have. I mean, she was suffering quite badly from anxiety that led to her losing her voice, which, I mean, if you're un- under any circumstances, that would be super stressful for anyone. But if you're a singer, that's like a really, like, I mean, that's kind of like how bad things had got. So I'm guessing that by the time they dropped her, she was kind of feeling pretty, well, in a bad place anyway, but maybe it was a catalyst for something that was really good for her. Um, she subsequently, like, she'd been writing the third album, nothing was really happening with it, binned it. Apparently it was pretty much close to being finished, but she wasn't happy with it. And then in a really kind of nice sort of way to end this part of the story, she just set up a a studio in her kitchen and wrote an album in four months, put it out under her own label at the start of this year. It's called Supervision. I really personally like it. Um, It's not going to be full of like those kind of sort of dance floor filling type feel good songs, but there's some really great tracks on there. I think it's a really nice 
it's a nice progression for her as an artist. And I think it's quite interesting to see like where she's come to and the fact that she's doing it on her own now. And this is kind of like an album on her terms. I quite like it. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. There's a lot of parallels actually uh, with the story mm-hmm. I'm going to tell uh, in a little bit about Amanda Palmer, which is totally by accident and we didn't do on purpose, but has worked out quite really? nicely. Yeah, a lot of parallels. Um, uh, but yeah, it's uh, I've not I've, I've missed that album somehow. Did you say it was called Supervision? Yeah. I'm going to have to go check that out. Um, but I think it's great when artists are able to get to that point um, where they mm-hmm. sort of have that initial success and then are able to to move on to having a bit more freedom and do what they really want to do at the end of the day. I think, and I think for someone that's listening as well, it's quite interesting to see how that progresses. I mean, you look. Let's be real. I mean, I loved, I loved her first album. I loved the third album, but there's no guarantees you're gonna like some like everything that an artist that you like puts out, right? But that's part of them going on a journey and you being on it with them I guess does that sound really cheesy it sort of did but I also totally agree with you to be honest so (laughs) we'll we'll just be we'll just be cheesy together I suppose I think that you do you've got and you've got different types of fans in that respect right you're gonna have Mm -hmm. fans that maybe love a particular sound that an artist had at one time and then if they develop and change they're not into it at all and then you've got those fans that love that artist I suppose a bit beyond that level whereby they want to go on that journey with them and see how they develop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the whole world's a critic Definitely. at the end of the day, aren't they? So <laughs> You can't please everyone, right? Exactly. Alrighty, so should we go on to a new track now, maybe? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So the track that I've chosen this week is by a band called Dutch Mustard. Uh, it's a track called Weeping Willow. Uh, they're a four-piece band from London, sunny London town, and they describe <laughs> themselves as a blend of rock with influences of grunge and shoegaze. Um, some of their influences they state are the Pixies and Placebo, and I really hope you like this track. I think they're a great band. I think the first time I saw them, they were playing in a charity shop for one of the Kick Out the Jams kind of unplugged things. The tiniest really gig like in the world. <laughs> It's true. The tiniest gig in the world where you can also so much buy fun, a second-hand dress. Yeah, such, I mean, such, if they ever get up and running again, check them. Yeah, such a good atmosphere to those shows. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, if you can't get to one of those shows, they've been playing isolation parties all over the place. They've got one coming up on the 24th of April, depending on if that's coming up or just gone when this podcast gets out for Benumu that you can definitely find online. Um, but for now, I'll leave you with their track, Weeping Willow.
So that was Dutch Mustard with their track Weeping Willow and they're currently recording a lot of new music using their lockdown time to get some new tunes ready for you. You'll be able to find those on either their Facebook page I guess which is Dutch Mustard, Instagram they're Dutch Mustard as well or on Twitter you can find them at Mustard Dutch. They also have a band camp. If you like what you heard, you can go along and buy that track or any of the others they've got up there. They've also got some great merch and you can find them, yeah, Dutch Mustard at Bandcamp. I think, uh, well, I already follow them on all those things. Lovely. But if I didn't, then I would. <laughs> crack on, Kerry, crack on. Um, all right, so moving swiftly on, I am now going to have a chat about Amanda Palmer. Cool. Um who we went to see as part of the Dresden Dolls together Mm -hmm. last year, didn't we? Yeah, she was, yeah, they were great. And I think she's a great performer as well. I mean, they're both great together. They're they're phenomenal. Yeah, they are. Yeah, amazing band, amazing show um, when they play together, which I'm going to get into a bit more. But I'm going to mainly focus on talking about um, her Kickstarter campaign, um, which she did for her album Theatre is Evil which at the time uh, was the most successful music crowdfunding campaign um, that had happened up until that point, raising $1.2 million. Jesus. Um, Yeah, so um, I'm going to get into the details of that a bit more later, but that's sort of going to be the main focus. But I'm going to start off with a bit of background about her and her career and kind of how she got to that point. Um, So uh, she was born in New York in 1976, grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, Growing up, she was always involved with kind of performing arts, both music and theatre. And uh, actually, one of her first jobs when she graduated from college was busking as a living statue, which she did for about five years. Like one of those Yoda things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but not Yoda. (laughs) All all living statues are just Yoda, Paula. I don't know. I don't know if those are the only ones you've been seeing, but it's quite a, a wide question. variety. I have a question. If Yoda was going to be busking, what song would he be playing? <laughs> what? What is that question? <laughs> uh, what song would Yoda be playing? I have no idea. Um, he'd be, yo- I can't think he'd of be yodeling, of course now. he would. <laughs> be yodeling. Oh my God. Was that just a terrible oh joke God. that you just came up Do you know what? When, when, all this, when all this madness ends, if I don't have a job anymore, I'm going to start writing the jokes for Christmas crackers. I've got a good career in that. <laughs> okay, yeah. For Christmas crackers, I reckon yeah. you might be onto something there. For uh, anything else, maybe not. <laughs> um, so anyway, so her living statue character was Yoda. No, it wasn't really. Um, <laughs> I'll make her my living st- <laughs> Her living statue character was the eight-foot bride. Um, and she would basically stand on a milk crate painted all in white in a wedding dress um, with like a hat at her feet for money. And when someone dropped money in the hat, she would basically hand them a flower. Um, and she she talks a lot about how that sort of experience um, of that sort of very mm-hmm. kind of almost intimate personal interaction sort of had quite a profound effect on the way that she's approached her, her career and so on moving forwards. Um, so it was during that time that she started the punk cabaret yeah. band, uh, the Dresden Dolls, um, with drummer Brian. I've never been sure how to say his last name. Viglione? Big, I'll take Biglione? that. I'm not really sure how to say it. I've probably just mangled it. Um, but uh, he's an absolutely amazing drummer um, as well. Absolutely insane the way that he plays. So unique, his sort of approach to the kit. Um, yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, and so she says in her book, Um, the art of asking that the Dresden Dolls functioned in an artistic community that depended on a messy exchange of goodwill and the swapping of favours and that kind of sense of community um, with her fans 
and that mm. sort of human exchange of art and ideas really informed the whole way that they approached being a band and their sort of what made them successful you know because they would always hang out after every show to chat with fans sign merchandise um you know they would go on tour and stay at fans houses you know they just put stuff out like we're coming to the city whose couch can we crash on sort of thing um and would always sort of invite local musicians to come and perform with them so there was really like this whole sense of community around everything they did which sort of resulted in really really dedicated fans um on a level a bit more than you would sort of normally find um and uh in the art of asking she also talks about some of the the odd things that they signed during that what was time. the oddest um well so everything from like reading glasses bibles bibles people's, yep people's faces um tea kettles uh she okay. says that she once signed a guy's penis which she comments was which she comments was not erect to clarify <laughs> i feel just to clarify um and brian once signed a girl's anus oh which is by far the oddest thing i've ever heard of someone saying. <laughs> not like a bum cheek no her anus oh got wow. right in there apparently so um just in the from the world of, of random facts that you find out um, <laughs> to each their own <laughs> exactly um and yeah fans would do things like give them gifts as well um and would like offer to give them money because they'd burned a cd from a friend and felt bad about it but you know wanted to pay for it sort of thing <laughs> that's quite cute paying for it after well it's awesome isn't it that's sort of i'm just trying to paint this picture of sort of what their their fans were like um basically and like i say just sort of like this dedication that people had to them and wanting to do the right thing make them successful as well you know wanting to play their part in that yeah exactly um so the dresden dolls signed to uh, a major label in the early 2000s Uh, they signed to roadrunner records um and basically were signed with them well as dresden dolls and as amanda palmer for seven years um before uh Amanda sort of pushed them into dropping her in 2010 um, because dropping her or dropping her and the Dresden Dolls. Well, both. I think I think by that point, to be fair, my research is not detailed enough for me to have the exact right facts on this <laughs> as is standard on this podcast. Um, but essentially, I think they had there were like three Dresden Dolls albums, um, and then there was a solo album. Um, that Amanda Palmer did as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that the Dresden Dolls had sort of ended and then she was just signed as Amanda Palmer. Um, and then I think she actually wrote a song that was called like Drop Me or something that was essentially really? try- <laughs> yeah, trying to get them uh, to drop her. And so eventually in 2010, they did um, for the reasons that she felt like she'd lost creative mm-hmm. control and they were pushing her to be more mainstream. In particular, um, this is pretty awful. There was an issue... Uh, when she shot the video for the song Leeds United, mm-hmm. um, which is a brilliant song and a brilliant video. Uh, I will put a link to it um, for you guys to check out because it's so good. Um, and one of the label higher-ups uh, basically brought up to her that some of the shots of her weren't flattering. Really? Uh, yep. And they were worried about her image and hoped that she could edit out the shots that made her look fat. <sighs> That's just rude. Yeah, so when when I'm talking about sort of like they were pushing her to be more mainstream, mm-hmm, it wasn't mm-hmm. just her music, it was in her sort of her image and, and everything, which if you know anything about her, it's just never going to happen. <laughs> you know, yeah. she's an unshaven yeah, yeah, yeah. feminist who, um, you know, stripped naked on stage in response to the Daily Mail reporting about her nip slip at a festival. So, 
you know, <laughs> she's not the sort of person that's going to edit out shots of her looking fat, which she didn't at all. Anyway, if you watch that video, um, you'll be shocked like that anyone would have said that because it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so, yeah, watch the video and realise how insane that is. And I'm sure everyone is in agreement that she did the right thing by dropping the label at that point. So, well, getting the label to drop her because she couldn't drop them because of the contract. Um, so anyway, um, after she left the label um, was when she decided to use Kickstarter um, to raise money for her next solo album. Um, so the album is called Theatre is Evil. Uh, and it's by Amanda Palmer and the Grand Theft Orchestra, sort of the name that she gave it. It's her solo album, but for sort of her mm-hmm. and the band that obviously recorded and toured for it. Um, so the campaign goal was $100,000, um, was how much she was aiming to raise for it. Um, and she ended up raising just under $1.2 million. It's insane. Yeah, from almost 25,000 people. Jesus. Um which, yeah, made it the biggest crowd crowdfunding campaign to date at the time. I don't know if there's yeah. been a bigger one since. I did try to find out, but I couldn't really find out. Um, but I'm not sure there would have been a bigger one than that that's raised that much money. I think that's a phenomenal achievement anyway. It's completely you look insane. At it. Um, and, you know, as you would expect, a lot of that was sort of from pre-orders of mm-hmm. different sort of download CD vinyl packages and bundles, um, as you would normally do with a crowdfunding campaign, but there were also more than $300,000 that was pledged for rewards offering sort of experiences wow. rather than things. Such as? So, you know, for like 300, yeah, so like for $300, you could go to a backers only show. Okay. Um, and there were almost four, almost 400 fans did that. Wow. Um, $5,000, uh, she would go play a show at your house. How many did that? Um, and there were like 30, 34 did wow. that so that would mean that she went and played 34 shows at people's houses off the back of that um and for, five grand a time Jesus. yeah five grand a time 34 people um for 10 grand um you could have dinner with her and she would paint your portrait and there were two people that chose that paint your portrait <laughs> yeah so for 10,000 you could have dinner with her she would paint your portrait during the um, course of dinner so yeah so it's good yeah, I, uh, yeah, I suppose so. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so hilarious. I can't claim to have reached out to the two backers to to find no. out exactly what was involved. Um, but um, I'd say their details yeah. are pretty under wraps as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not sure I could find them if I tried. So, um, and if so, there would probably be some sort of weird data breach going on with Amanda yeah. Palmer and Kickstarter. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I just find it interesting. Um, as a, as a thing, you know, people have different views on it as to whether they saw it as being kind of a good thing or a bad thing that she did this because she already had obviously a certain amount mm-hmm. of success that she was able to call upon um, in terms of a fan base and so on from being in the Dresden Dolls. Um, you know, somebody couldn't just come out of nowhere and raise $1.2 million, right? Um, through a crowdfunding campaign. Um, but I still think that it's, pretty impressive because although she had a fan base from the Dresden Dolls by no means is she like massively famous and certainly not at that point she's not Beyonce like if if anything she's probably more like kind of doing this campaign and it being so successful I think ended up making her more famous than she was before but certainly at that point she wasn't she's not like a household name no you know 
Um, so to have raised that much um, is insane. And I think that the reason she was able to do it is because of this very sort of like personal interaction that she has with her fans um, and always has done from those early days in the Dresden Dolls. But especially now, you know, through blogging, email and social media, um, she very much sort of shares her artistic journey and just her daily life as well um, with her fans on a very personal level and makes a lot of effort to, to respond to people too so mm-hmm. it's very much like a two-way conversation that sort of happens online between her and her fans which means she's got this very loyal fan base who really want to help her and want to pay for her art and want to see everything that she produces um which is interesting because you know it it's hard you're either that sort of person or you're not i think to some extent like we talk about it a lot how we find it quite hard to yeah wonder and wonder if we should do more of putting more of our personal lives sort of mm-hmm. on social media sort of through the band but for a lot of us we don't really feel well for all of us really we don't feel that comfortable with it sort of thing no I totally get some people can do it but I think that's maybe where I mean the two stories that we've well the two yeah the two stories we talked about today like LaRue and Amanda Palmer um I think there there is a similarity there is in that they were being pushed the wrong way by a label but I think what well, Amanda Palmer did really well was take it and turn it into something positive. Whereas I think it was quite a destructive thing for LaRue. Like, and sure. maybe that's, I mean, she admits it herself. She's quite a big control freak. So maybe if you're that kind of person, you, it can go, it goes either way for you. Like it, it either pushes you on or it completely destroys you. Yeah, for sure. And um, and with doing the crowdfunding campaign, obviously it was massively positive in that she was very much able to do everything she wanted with the album and more, having raised way above the goal, right? Um, but she did also receive a massive backlash um, after she? it. Yeah, which I sort of hinted at before, but to go into it in a bit more detail, um, sort of the what it seemed to be centred around mainly was the fact that she posted a request for local professionalish horns and string players um to come play in her band on some dates of the tour um that they'd be required to show up for rehearsal beforehand um and in return you know she would feed the musicians beer hugs high fives um merch um and thank i'm I'm sort of reading a quote but not so maybe i should just read the quote would make more sense wouldn't it um so she basically uh said she would feed the musicians beer hug high five you up and down pick your poison give you merch and thank you mightily for adding to the big noise we are planning to make um but the whole thing being that obviously she wasn't going to pay them so it was in return for yeah for hugs and beer and and drinks and stuff like that good karma exactly (laughs) but obviously having raised all of this money um you know, the web was very quickly alight with disdain from professional musicians, union members and all sorts of people questioning her actions. There was even an article in The New Yorker um, which was called uh, Amanda Palmer's Accidental Experiment with Real Communism um, and it described her as the internet's villain of the month. Really? Um, Yeah, so there was like this massive media and uh, from all sorts of people backlash against her for not paying these musicians um and she in the end she did end up deciding to to pay them um just yeah i suppose just to sort of react to this backlash but she did defend herself saying that you know she wasn't forcing anyone to do it and um for her and her community and this you know from way back in the dresden dolls they'd had local musicians just come and perform um with them and that sort of exchange of them having the opportunity to come and play i guess on stages that would be bigger than they might normally get to Mm -hmm. 
um and do that in exchange for yeah just sort of love and being part of that community was an exchange that she felt made total sense yeah. within that community you know um but outside but and she felt that sort of people from the outside just didn't understand it didn't mm-hmm. perceive it in that same way and just saw it as her taking advantage um so i don't really know how i feel about that i i haven't quite decided where which side of it i fall on i think that the the backlash she got and the criticism she got was excessive yeah but i do also think that she should maybe have been a little bit more aware um and have just agreed to sort of pay those musicians from the start really i guess it's one of those things that you can look at it from a thousand different sides and unless you're directly involved you don't really know i mean you don't know what the general vibe was amongst that community at that time. I mean, was this something that happened? Was it something that happened frequently? Like, did bands just, I don't know, pitch up at a town and be like, yeah, we need some horn players for this? I mean, I'm not really involved in that kind of world to kind of comment, but I totally get where you're coming from. It's probably naive at best. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think she was totally well-intentioned and she didn't want to take advantage of anyone. Um, but I can see how it was perceived that way um, to some extent. But yeah, but at the same time, if those musicians were happy to do it, um, then, yeah, I don't know. It's a hard one because it just comes down to this idea that we should all be paid fairly for our art, right? Which is also very much a part of what she's trying to do in general as well, to make sure that she gets paid fairly for her art. Um, so maybe she just should have been more aware of reciprocating that to, to people agreeing yeah. to come on board and help her out by playing at her shows sort of thing. So to bring my long-winded ramble to some sort of conclusion, <laughs> um, she so following the Kickstarter campaign, because it was obviously so massive and brought so much attention, she was actually invited to give a TED talk um, in 2013. Um, and the title of that talk is The Art of Asking. Uh, and she's written a book by the same name, um, both of which are brilliant and I highly recommend um, to anyone who's interested just the way that she talks about this whole concept of Mm -hmm. being able to ask for help essentially and how as artists we find that really difficult um Mm -hmm. you know to put value on what we do and to ask for money for it I think is something that most artists struggle with uh in some way or other and it's her way of sort of showing that it's okay to do that Uh, and it's really interesting so yeah highly recommend um watching that TED talk it'll only take like 13 minutes of your life so it's not a big one to get involved with and I will post the link to it as well um and the book is obviously goes into a bit more detail uh, about all of that stuff and it's really fascinating so I highly recommend them um she's now one of Patreon's top earners mm-hmm. so obviously makes total sense right she's got this community around her who want to pay her for what she does so literally within a day of her launching her Patreon in 2015, she had 1,400 patrons and was earning $13,000 per release. Wow. Yeah, like, it's insane. She now has more than 15,000 patrons at this point. Um, And yeah, it basically means that she's able to make whatever art she wants. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody tells her what she should or shouldn't do. She releases it direct to fans who are equally then able to tell her what they want to see. You know, she has this two-way conversation. So as well as them obviously paying for whatever she chooses to put out, they also sort of have a forum to be able to say, well, this is more the sort of thing we'd like to see. Um, And she's sort of able to respond to that, which is cool. I think that can have its own problems though, in a way. Like, you know, if there's everyone with a a voice and everyone with an opinion, you can end up 
being kind of pushed, still still being pushed into something you don't necessarily want to do, I guess. Well, yeah, for sure. But I suppose she's not going to, that doesn't mean that every fan that asks for something, she's going to do of it, course. right? But it means that she's at least able to, she has the voice of her patrons there to have a sense of what people, you know, genuinely want. And it's not what record labels think people want. It's literally what her fans are saying that they want. So I suppose if she's seeing it come up across a wide range of people that they want something then she sort of knows to go down that route i suppose to some extent but i reckon yeah. for the most part she just she just does what she wants to be fair <laughs> um and uh yeah her most recent album there will be no intermission uh, was released last year um all crowdfunded through patreon um and yeah i kind of just wanted to finish with this quote um from her which i thought was interesting about sort of this crowdfunded model I suppose, for for releasing music. So she said, um, music used to be very direct and transactional and between small members of small communities. And then we forgot because MTV and because Madonna and Michael Jackson and Prince, everyone all of a sudden thought that there had to be this gigantic chasm between the art maker and the art taker. I think what's actually happening is we're getting back to basics in business, in music. Uh, Which, yeah, I just thought was an interesting quote to end on sort of sums up the the whole idea of the thing and that kind of leads into something that i'm going to be chatting about in the lock-in but i'll keep that one for later Ooh, exciting i'm definitely not organized to know what i'm talking about in the lock-in but i will figure it out (laughs) all right so if you have enjoyed what you've been hearing if you have heard us say something that is wrong (laughs) which we probably have at some point we usually do um send us an email over to uh, rockpoprambles at gmail.com if you've got any suggestions of stories you might like to hear about or if, yeah, you want to fact check us, anything at all, feel free to get in touch. You can also get in touch over on our socials. Um, It's Bug Eye Band on Twitter, Bug Eye Music on Instagram um, and just Bug Eye on on Facebook, I think. Um, And yeah, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, make sure to click the old subscribe button if you haven't already. Um, so that you don't miss our future rambles and uh, new music offerings for you. Um, But yeah, I think that's about it, isn't it, Paula? Yeah, definitely from me. So we'll see you over at the lock-in. Yeah, let's do it. Over and out.